This episode of New Politics was recorded on July 31, 2020, and produced on the land of the Wangal people. Welcome to the New Politics Podcast, providing analysis and opinion on Australian politics and filling in all the gaps left behind by the mainstream media. In this episode, the ghosts of Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan reappear on the national stage, and politics during the time of COVID-19 fails to act in the public interest yet again. I'm Eddie Djokovic, editor of New Politics. I'm David Lewis, conceptual artist and avant-garde filmmaker. It's been a long time since the names of Ronald Reagan and Margaret Thatcher have been heard on the national stage, but the Federal Treasurer, Josh Frydenberg, decided that these are the names that are going to provide his inspiration in repairing the Australian economy, which is heading towards national government debt of almost a trillion dollars, currently in recession and facing depression-like conditions, massive unemployment, and a generation that's facing lost opportunities over the next couple of decades. These are the last people you'd be looking for inspiration at the moment. Reaganomics and Thatcherism were a shared ideology that cut government spending as much as possible, cut taxes as much as possible, and deregulated markets, government and social services wherever possible as well. Frydenberg can muse about the merits of Reagan and Thatcher in his spare time or recall their virtues when he's writing up his memoirs, but I'd be looking at new economic thinking that suits the times. It seems like he's channeling the wrong ideas at the wrong time. It says a lot about the priorities of the Liberal National when you have a relatively young treasurer espousing the failed ideologies of a system that's 30 years old. Reagan is very fondly remembered in the United States. Uh, When I was at the White House shop a couple of years ago, you could only buy portraits of five presidents, Lincoln, Kennedy, Reagan, I think a Roosevelt, and a Washington. You couldn't buy Barack Obama, you couldn't buy Eisenhower, you couldn't buy uh, Bill Clinton, you couldn't buy George W. Bush. Those were the five. And it was interesting that Reagan was a part of it. And that is not because of his economic principles that he's remembered so fondly. It's because he gets the credit for ending the Cold War. Really, he was the president in place when the system collapsed. Certainly, he added some rhetoric to it, which was certainly helpful or inspirational, at least, to um, people in the in Eastern Europe at the time. But they then spent the next 30 years trying to find another place to have a Cold War in. And you still have the arguments come out that such and such is a socialist system and we're living under Russia and what have you. Thatcher, of course, was a very miserable and nasty piece of work. Fondly remembered for winning the Falklands, but that was a very limited victory for a very small purpose. I'm sure the people who lost lives and lost limbs don't like it being discussed like that, but it was an attempt to show Britain as a major world power, and it showed Britain as a medium power squabbling over or fighting over land in the Pacific that they had no more claim to than Argentina. Both Reagan and Thatcher were economic disasters. Both plunged their countries into almost unaffordable debt, Both cut vital services for the mantra of profit margin. Both cut tax for the very wealthy and raised tax on the poor. Poverty increased exponentially under both Thatcher and Reagan. She destroyed the mining industry for no good reason uh, and didn't replace it with anything. I, I guess you can see when you start to dig in it why somebody like Josh Frydenberg might get inspiration from this. 
but it's not really a positive, strong or even successful model to build from. And those coal communities did disappear during the time of Margaret Thatcher. Almost a quarter of a million miners lost their jobs in areas of England, Scotland and Wales. And there was nothing set up to replace the almost complete loss of the coal industry in the UK. Mm. And that was one effect of Thatcherism. Communities destroyed without any transitional arrangements to create new economic opportunities or new employment opportunities. And 35 years later, most of those communities have never recovered Uh, There are almost 6 million people in those former coal mining areas still looking for work and generations of families still requiring access to unemployment benefits. Politically in Australia, not many people would be aware of Thatcher or, or Reagan. They both finished their time in politics over 30 years ago. There might be an awareness of those people as long-distant political characters, but half of the electorate might not have been born at this time or would have been very young children. And maybe that's what Frydenberg's intention was, to invoke these great historical figures, a bit of grandstanding, while assuming that the electorate might not understand the legacy of all of those negative actions inflicted upon those specific communities. And and this will probably bring up some opportunities for Frydenberg's political opponents, where all they have to do is focus on the negative impacts of Thatcher's and Reagan's policies, the increase in homelessness, community upheaval, attacks on unions, pro-business anti-worker policies. People don't need to have a history lesson about Thatcher or Reagan, but once they get an understanding of the effects of their policies, Frydenberg's ideas of using their policies will be discarded as soon as possible. One of the weaknesses of the government is that they haven't really progressed from being a rather childish and immature, well, a rather immature opposition into being a mature government. You know, Frydenberg mentioned something along the lines of these are a figure to hate for the left. Well, so what? You're governing for all Australians, regardless of their political affiliations, why would you frame them in such a way? It's one thing if he'd said, look, I think Reagan and Thatcher were great economic managers and gave figures and facts that supported this and even said, and we can adjust some of it. And you might think, okay, you've put some thought into this. You're still wrong, but you've put some thought into this and it might be worth trying. But this childish obsession with the left, which is never properly defined and Everyone is thrown into the same boat. The left is never delineated amongst the complex shades that make up the so-called left. All of this arose when Josh Frydenberg recently spoke at the National Press Club where he outlined a pathway of sorts of economic recovery, but it seems like it's an economic recovery that he's thinking about that will result in the same type of economy as before. It's a spluttering economy, one that serves vested interests rather than public interests, and an economy that is inefficient, environmentally disastrous, and one that is ill-equipped to deal with the current circumstances. So he did raise eyebrows when he mentioned Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan as a source of inspiration, and then followed it up with a discussion on the ABC's Insiders program. You did say when it comes to economic reform the other day that you'll be taking inspiration from (laughs) Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan. Really? Well, they 
dealt very successfully with the challenges that they faced, particularly stagflation, high unemployment, high inflation. But if you, if you look at uh, uh, Margaret Thatcher, after Labor's winter of discontent, she came in, she reduced the number of days lost to industrial disputation from 30 million down to 2 million. She cut taxes and she talked about every earner being an owner. Also went and, for uh, some sweeping uh, IR reform well, that might well, scare some, the, uh, some workers. Well, she had 11 and a half years, so she was doing something right by the, by the, the people of Britain. And when it comes to, to Ronald Reagan, he used to talk about two economists having three opinions. But what he did say is that you know, cutting taxes, cutting red tape, he created 20 million new jobs. Double the debt. Uh, it, well, he did spend the Soviets into submission, and that wasn't a bad thing um, So for the world. Uh, so he was very successful. Re Reaganomics well, is, he, he is, boosted, is a... Well, he boosted, he boosted growth. It's sometimes <coughs> trickle-down economics no, too. Well, right? you know, it, the, the, these uh, Thatcher and Reagan are figures of hate for the left because they were so successful. One got two terms, which was the maximum you can get in the United States. Margaret Thatcher got 11 and a half year, years. So they're your so so guiding light here. Well, no, well, you take inspiration from lots of different sources. I also take it from Howard and Costello. Oh. But, I mean, the reality is uh, that Thatcher and Reagan cut red tape, they cut taxes, and they delivered stronger economies. Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan, of course, they were major figures in political history. There's yeah. absolutely no question about that. Their politics were steeped in the history of the Cold War and helped to bring about an end of the Soviet Union. But for a treasurer to start invoking these figures who were ideologues of the 1980s and the 1990s, these people who were Cold War warriors from the past, well, their economic policies are totally inappropriate if we're looking for solutions to the current crisis. And, and I think it also shows how out of depth Josh Frydenberg might actually be. They may have won the battle, but they lost the war. Margaret Thatcher was essentially rolled because she tried to bring in a poll tax, which even a lot of her hardline supporters just knew was going to be an electoral disaster. And I think also in some, knew that it would be disastrous for the country. She ended her life much embittered. Reagan, his presidency ends in tragedy, really. He gets um, he develops Alzheimer's disease and as a result isn't really capable of making decisions and really should have stepped down uh, around 1985-86, you know, one or two years into his second term. It's a terrible thing to have happened to him, and we don't wish that on on anyone. But it certainly tarnished his legacy as politics abhors a vacuum, and there was a, a policy and a power vacuum where the president should have been. And so less scrupulous people were able to, to fill it. Arnold Schwarzenegger was talking about old Nazis, and th I thought this was really interesting, and he said that Growing up in Austria after the war, he knew these old Nazis and he said they were pathetic losers, which, you know, good on him. It was a really great little speech, actually, uh, full, full credit to him. And I think you can say the same about Thatcher and Reagan. It's all right when things are good, but uh, the economics make it bad very quickly. And when things are bad, the economics don't work at all. They should be consigned to the historical textbooks, maybe as a thing of this is what not to do, <laughs> rather than held up as a model by a young man who, you know, who, who must have seen the devastation it's caused. Of course, the Liberal Party is in the thrall of rich miners, uh, the gaming industry, other wealthy vested interests who want to do as little productivity for as much return as possible. So that's probably just as much of Josh's motivations as any 
intellectually ideological approach. Economic thinking does need to suit the economic and political circumstances of the time. And as we keep being told, these are unprecedented times and they most certainly are. But it's not just a simple process of looking at which policies have worked in previous points of history and just reapplying those and hoping for the same result. It just doesn't work like that. One big issue for this Treasurer and one big issue for this government is that there's always this knee-jerk response that they want to get the economy snapped back to the way that it was before COVID-19 commenced. But even if that's what they wanted to achieve, there's no pathway or no clear direction for how they want that to be implemented. It's, it's not a new idea, but one idea that has been floated around recently from outside of government is universal basic income. But Politically, that's a difficult policy to implement, and economically, it's a theoretical idea that hasn't been fully tested yet, although the Republican administration of Richard Nixon had universal basic income as a serious policy proposition in the late 1960s. And if something like that might be too difficult ideologically or politically too difficult for the government to look at, there's the idea of universal service provision, where Key essential services are provided for free to the public, healthcare, aged care, education across all sectors, including early childhood education, primary and secondary, vocational and university education. These are some of the issues that Frydenberg should be looking at, ideas that are relevant to the 2020s and beyond, not a wish list of old ideologically driven ideas that should have been consigned to the dustbin of the 1980s and the 1990s. I should add here, after my anti-rant, Reaganism and Thatcherism was very successful for a very small group of already rich people. And that seems to be the priority in the current government. Now, where they've tried universal basic income, it seems to have worked. One of the arguments against it is that it would stop people looking for work. In fact, it helped lift the number of people looking for work and finding work because with their basic bills paid, people had the mental and emotional energy to expand themselves. Again, I don't know that it's a good long-term solution, but certainly a, a universal basic income for the whole of the 2021 financial year would work better than a confusing and confused job seeker, job keeper, job maker, job faker, job stealer, whatever it was. And would relieve a lot of stress, would help those being productive be more productive, who would make those being less productive more productive, it seems. It worked with uh, the GFC, you know, those couple of payments that the Rudd and Swan government gave us helped us through the GFC. A similar form, and it might have to be more, it may have to be more and for longer, might just work. But we would need a government of vision and competence, which I don't think we've got. Well, a good economy is an inclusive economy, one where everyone has reasonable economic opportunities mm. and where those economic opportunities are not favourable or the economic circumstances are not great, those people should be provided with the financial support and the social support that they need to be able to contribute to that economy. Thatcher and Reagan, they pursued policies that were the antithesis of an inclusive economy. They pursued policies that were divisive. And it's disappointing that Josh Frydenberg as Treasurer of Australia, has decided to hold up these people as a model of excellence at a, at a time when different ideas are needed. Yeah, we're being led by thinkers of the 1980s in the 2020s. 
to put that into a bit of perspective, it would be like thinkers of the 1890s working in the 1930s. And that's exactly what happened. That did not end well. You're listening to New Politics. You can subscribe to us on Apple or Google Podcasts, listen through SoundCloud and Spotify, or find us at newpolitics.com.au. Up next, the political system during coronavirus fails to act in the public interest, and it's business as usual. Coronavirus cases are increasing all around the world and Australia has had a spike over the past two months, almost doubling the total number of cases, with most of those coming from the City of Melbourne. Government leaders do need to take responsibility in times of crisis and whenever we find out what the exact causes for the outbreaks in Melbourne have been, political costs will need to be paid. But those political costs can wait for another time. Whatever people think about the Premier of Victoria, Daniel Andrews, and he does have his supporters and quite a few detractors as well, at least he fronts up every single day of the week, announcing to the public the bad news of increasing COVID-19 cases and the deaths occurring in aged care facilities. But he's there, facing the music, facing all the pressure that's been thrown at him by the media and his political opponents, and getting on with whatever needs to be done to resolve the crisis. In contrast, during a very, very difficult week in Victoria, Scott Morrison was campaigning in Queensland on behalf of the Liberal Party, which is facing a state election in October, declared that the increase in COVID-19 numbers is a Victoria wave, and is supporting the High Court case instigated by mining tycoon Clive Palmer, and that's a case where he's taking action against the WA government for closing off its borders. It seems that state leaders are doing their best to contain the virus and manage the crisis, but Morrison seems to be doing his best to create trouble and maximise political opportunities for himself and the Liberal Party. I, I think the really interesting thing is the Federation is failing. Morrison has been saying it's a Victorian virus, blaming Victoria uh, for the lockdown that's inevitably coming almost inevitably coming into New South Wales and Queensland. For the Prime Minister of Australia, it shouldn't be a blame game for states. You might blame certain individuals, but certainly not name them. It was appalling that those girls who went to Queensland were named and their photos put on the front page of the paper. That was just not right. They did the wrong thing. And they've been appropriately penalised for that, as far as I can tell. But we don't need to know who they are. We don't need to know what they look like. I don't think they went out to spread the virus. And a lot of the blame can be put on elements of the press and the Victorian Liberal Party who've been doing nothing but trying to undermine Dan Andrews instead of working with him. Back to Scott Morrison, he shouldn't have made it a state's issue. As leader of the Federation, he should say this is a problem that, though it's happening in Melbourne, is something that we are all a part of. 
and that we all have to work together and we support our citizens in Victoria in any ways that we can, even if that is staying away from Victoria. It's making sure that all citizens of Victoria wear a mask when they're out. And why not New South Wales, Queensland and South Australia wear one in solidarity also to help stop the spread? We locked down too late, open too early. This is a lot of the federal government pushing. State premiers have been better. Uh, New South Wales is a basket case. Gladys Berejiklian having a press conference with the president of the Australian Hotels Association was, was not a good look. Queensland has been fine. South Australia has been one of the more outstanding states along with Victoria. Western Australia, Mark McGowan's been doing a very, very good job. Uh, Anna Palaszczuk has been doing a very, very good job too. Dan Andrews, of course, was hit by bad luck. Most epidemiologists have said that. The bad luck's going to continue. Scott Morrison isn't helping in that. And when we get to the Ruby Princess and whose fault it was, we said all along that it was really Border Force who was uh, mostly to blame, and it turns out that that was right. The electorate is always going to be interested in apportioning blame, but at the right time. They're actually more interested in problems being solved and practical solutions being put in place to resolve those problems. Blame or electoral payback, that's what elections are all about. But at the moment, whether it's happening in Melbourne or other parts of the country, the electorate primarily is after solutions to the COVID-19 crisis. But there seems to be a few people that don't actually want solutions, especially when we look at what's happening in Western Australia. Whenever Clive Palmer appears in the public spotlight, self-interest is never far behind, and so it is with his current case in the federal court for the WA government to open up its borders. It's going to end up in the High Court towards the end of this year, and the Attorney-General, Christian Porter, and the Prime Minister, Scott Morrison, are giving the case a great deal of public support. The case looks at sections 117 and 92 of the Constitution. Section 117 is that idea about no citizen of any state being discriminated by another state, and section 92 relates to free trade all across Australia. Now, we can never know how the High Court will adjudicate in these matters. Scott Morrison did say that the High Court is likely to uphold Clive Palmer's case, but that's exactly what Malcolm Turnbull said in the citizenship case in 2017. And that was before the High Court ruled a number of MPs were not eligible to sit in Parliament. But whatever the result is, Palmer and Morrison are completely underestimating the West Australian psyche, which absolutely detests outside interference in state political affairs coming in from the eastern states. And I'm pretty sure that even in the unlikely event that the High Court does rule in the favour of Clive Palmer, the Premier, Mark McGowan, is probably going to have a strong amount of public support and political support to keep the borders closed. But this is all based around Clive Palmer wanting to be a political player in the WA state election in 2021. And Scott Morrison's support for Clive Palmer's High Court case is returning political favours to Clive Palmer, who, through the United Australia Party, essentially delivered victory to the Liberal National Party in the 2019 federal election through their preference deals in Queensland. That's what this is all about. It's all about political payback. It's pretty clear Scott Morrison really doesn't understand how the job works. I don't think any Prime Minister has ever commented on a private citizen taking on a government in the High Court, except their own, because the Prime Minister shouldn't be meddling in the affairs of the judiciary. 
he can have his own private views, of course, but until the court decides, he should not comment on them. Clive also is facing a very heavy penalties with possible jail for fraud. I'm wondering if this is a way of distracting his followers from that. After the Pell decision, I don't know that we can predict the High Court. And in a sense, you shouldn't be able to predict the High Court, otherwise why have them? It seems to me that the Constitution is pretty firmly on the side of self-determination for the states, and that if they want to close their borders for extraordinary reasons, they're allowed to do that. I'm guessing Clive Palmer is going to argue that it impinges on free trade. But this isn't really a trade issue. This isn't Western Australia saying we're putting tariffs on and we're not trading with people because of invalid reasons. This is Western Australia saying we need to keep these shut till this disease is done. And every state should be allowed to do that. And free trade, of course, also means that you don't have to trade with people you don't want to. The trade is free. So I think that just keeps Clive in court for an extra six months while he works out a better defence for the shareholder fraud he's up against. But I could be wrong, and it's all alleged, of course. Now, some of our listeners have taken us to task for concentrating too much on Scott Morrison and, and taking Scott Morrison to task. Now, the reason why we do this is that he is the Prime Minister. These are all the jobs that he should be doing, but he's, he's not. He seeks political opportunities at all costs. He shirks responsibility. And it's our job in the field of journalism to point this out. Now, of course, this idea of seeking political opportunity at all costs and shirking responsibilities, that this is what politicians try to do. Morrison has taken this to a different level. Like, he just doesn't want to be seen anywhere near any sorts of trouble. But leaders are made during a time of crisis. And will there be a blowback for Scott Morrison and the Liberal Party from all of this? Ultimately, leaders do need to take responsibility. Voters want to see their leaders as people of substance and people that will take on responsibility when the difficult things happen within the community, and irrespective of what it is. And it doesn't matter if it's happening in Melbourne or Perth or Sydney or Brisbane. A Prime Minister needs to take responsibility for this. But during that time that all of the pressure was faced by Daniel Andrews, Scott Morrison was campaigning up in Queensland. He was there. It was his second visit to Queensland in two weeks. He visited Walker Seafoods. That's a Liberal National Party donor. And it's been a regular visiting spot for Liberal Party MPs. Josh Frydenberg was also there last year. But Scott Morrison was there inspecting tuna fish, um, handshaking, gr- meeting and greeting people, while in Melbourne there was this disaster happening with the COVID-19 management. There's also that issue of aged care facilities as well. Private aged care facilities, they're actually the responsibility of the federal government. We have to ask the question, well, why was the Newmarch disaster in Sydney and the aged care disaster that's happening in, in Melbourne, why are these issues being worn by the state premiers rather than the national leader? Private aged care facilities fall under the jurisdiction of the federal government, of course. And the figures of infection rates in private versus state-run aged care is horrendous. 90-something percent of all infections in aged care homes were privately owned. Now, some of this, of course, is bad luck. A lot of it is cost-cutting. A lot of it is less rigorous standards. Uh, A lot of it, well, at least some of it is profiteering. This is a federal government responsibility. Looking at Greg Hunt's body language, he knows he's responsible. He looks very worried. He looks very nervous. I'm sure it's been very difficult for him. And they were warned of this. 
Well, they were definitely warned about this, but we also have to backtrack a little bit where in 2017, the aged care sector was stripped of $1.2 billion. At the time, the aged care sector did say, well, taking $1.2 billion out of this sector is going to create a lot of problems. Huge problems with staff management, the care of elderly people in, in those homes. I don't think it's a case where the onset of COVID-19 has caused all of these problems within the Newmarch facility or within Melbourne aged care homes. This is a situation that's been brewing for a long, long time. Now, it's not like these private aged care homes became private all of a sudden. It's something that was set up through the Moran Group over 25 years ago. That was during the period of John Howard's reign. There's a lot of very vested interest within the aged care facilities and there's a lot of ownership such as the Moran Group or Kerry Stokes. These are big business people. These are captains of industry. Yet here they are with a large stake of money within private aged care facilities. Uh, What we've seen is that the... And this takes us back to our first section. The privatised, less government, less has failed. It's absolutely failed. Uh, Every time there's a crisis, it fails. Will we keep banging our head against the wall, not realising it feels better when it stops? I don't know. There's a few very powerful vested interests who like to see it uh, remain. Certainly looking at it objectively, it fails again and again and again. Here we, we can bring Labor into it too. Labor were just as much a part of it. Hawke and Keating brought it in as well. Uh, and I think a lot of the Labor Party at the moment are very much in favour of this type of, of model. And this is not good. It's yesterday's philosophy. It's yesterday's failed philosophy. And we've really got to do something about it. But at the moment, with the current government and the current opposition, I don't think it's going to change in a hurry. Well, Parliament still isn't sitting at the moment. Six months after the pandemic commenced in Australia, Parliament still hasn't worked out a way of conducting its business remotely like the rest of the world is doing. Now, the sitting of Parliament, I know that it's not just all about question time. There's a wide range of meetings, clandestine meetings, incidental meetings, all sorts of political business that takes place away from the public view. But this is still an issue that jars with the public. If everyone else is obliged to work if they can, it seems like there just hasn't been even an attempt to look at ways of setting up the workings of Parliament remotely. There is a parliamentary group that has been set up to look at this, but that was only set up last week. Scott Morrison, I can understand, he's keen to avoid as much scrutiny as possible, and that's been a hallmark of his time as Prime Minister. And with all the pressure currently on Anthony Albanese, he's probably not too keen to have a caucus meeting either, either face-to-face or remotely. But we also had the bizarre situation during the week where the Defence Ministers, Maurice Payne and Linda Reynolds, they flew all the way over to the coronavirus hotspot, the United States, then returned to Australia, no quarantine, straight into meetings, and away they went. So we've got ministers travelling overseas, meeting and greeting, holding their personal meetings, then coming back to Australia, but Parliament can't work out a way to continue holding Parliament. Something's not quite right about this situation. Uh, This is my big worry. Parliament is the centre of governance in Australia. If it's not meeting, the government isn't running properly. It needs to meet probably nine to ten months of the year. You don't need to be a legislative powerhouse like the Gillard government, who I think brought in the most amount of legislation of any Australian government. But you do need to be continually debating, 
the government needs to be held to account, the opposition needs to be held to account, the government needs to discuss policy, the opposition needs to discuss policy, the crossbenchers need to be held to account and discuss policy, local seats need to be supported and represented. And at the moment, we don't have that. We have a committee, a very shady committee made up of the usual vested interests, making decisions that apparently you can't get freedom of information requests for. This isn't how it should work, even in a crisis. We sat through World War II. The British Parliament sat through World War II. We had uh, what, a, an election in 40 and 42 and 45 in the midst of a big crisis. Parliament sat. We swapped prime ministers three times, really. Menzies to Fadden to Curtin. The system works if you let it work. I don't think they want to let it work. It seems like there's yet another scandal brewing in politics. I've actually lost count of all the misappropriations of money and seemingly illegal activities going on. But just when you think surely there couldn't be any more, another situation pops up. This time it's the management of iCare, that's the workers' compensation system managed by the New South Wales government. It replaced WorkCover in 2015 and it's a scheme that collects over $3 billion per year. But there has been a great deal of mismanagement, denial of claims made by uh, injured workers, underpayments to the tune of $80 million, theft of money by management, credit card fraud. Now, the the Board of iCare is chaired by a Liberal Party donor, Michael Carapiat, and the New South Wales Treasurer, Dominic Perrottet, he's ultimately responsible for iCare. Now, it seems like he just hasn't been taking any notice. He hasn't got his finger on the pulse here. But you just expect that with all of these royal commissions that have happened over the past couple of years and investigations into the financial markets and and banking, why do these corruptions keep on happening in these larger entities? It seems to me there's a certain group of people who see opportunity to enrich themselves. They find people who are happy to help with that and they go to work. One of the, I think, mistakes is privatisation of insurance. Insurance can't really be a profit-driven thing. I know that historically insurance has always been private, but when it's state-run and the losses are ameliorated by the state, it works better. It's not perfect, Of course, it's not perfect, but it works better. I remember when they privatized green slips and we were promised $99 green slips. I don't think it ever went down to $99. The prices just went up. Green slip now ranges from anywhere from $600 to $1,400 a year. Just, you know, outrageously expensive. Again, for people to profit from the misery of others, it leaves a very uneasy taste in my mouth. Certainly we should work on behalf of people who have suffered and it's okay to be justly rewarded. But the board is getting paid millions and millions of dollars and it doesn't seem that they're returning that type of value. I note the Labor President, New South Wales Labor President, Mark Lennon, quit the board as soon as there was a sniff. He shouldn't have been on the board in the first place. But that's a start anyway, I guess. I think that there's going to be a lot more fallout. 
these types of structures and these types of entities, they do depend on people of goodwill. And I'm sure that there's many people out there with the right credentials and the right amount of goodwill and commitment to the public interest. But in the absence of that, if government operatives aren't prepared to look hard enough to find these people of goodwill and calibre, well, that's when tougher legislation needs to be implemented by governments and tougher corporate regulations and fines for when these people are caught out. This sort of theft, mismanagement, illegal activities, it needs to be stamped out. But it's not as though we haven't had this sort of behaviour before. Sydney Water Corporation had the same level of mismanagement and corruption where disgraced Labor MP Eddie Obeid was involved, as, as was former Liberal Party Senator Arthur Sinodinus. These entities are littered with people who are there purely because of political favours or they're friends of the government. And there's reasons why this corruption keeps on happening. The wrong people end up on the boards of these organisations for all the wrong reasons. They're not people of good calibre. They're not people of good character. And it's obvious that if these corruptions are still occurring, the legislation needs to be tightened up a great deal more. Yeah, there's a lot of people on a lot of boards who shouldn't be on the board. Running a board, particularly a not-for-profit board, is a different skill to running a business. And a lot of business people go on boards and don't quite understand how they should be run. It's this breakdown of democracy that we've had. And again, I'm not going to say one side does it better than the other. That's Both sides have their fault. But because we don't have enough people engaged in democratic practice, and that is volunteering, that is sitting on you know, your local your church boards, your PNC boards, your chess boards, your musical theatre boards, your car club boards, whatever it is, your local gardening boards. You don't have enough people who understand how it works and hence you don't you can't extrapolate that knowledge into a wider or a bigger model, such as local government, state government, federal government. And this is how you end up in the situation we are today. We need to get back to democratic engagement. It's that simple. That's it for this new politics podcast. And just a reminder, if you offer $50 of support or more up until the end of August, we'll send you a copy of our new book, Divided Opinions. We don't beg, plead, beseech or claim the end of journalism is nigh. We just keep it very simple. If you like what we do and want to support independent journalism, go to our website, newpolitics.com.au. All the details are there. And don't forget to give our program a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts or any other location where you can find us. Thanks for listening in. I'm Eddie Djokovic and it's goodbye to our listeners. I'm David Lewis. We'll see you next time.